0: Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Today, I'm interviewing Dave Schiffman. And if you're not familiar with Dave, Dave is a Grammy winner and multi-platinum selling producer, mixer, and engineer who came up the ranks as Rick Rubin's engineer. And together they worked on a ton of amazing records, including Red Hot Chili Peppers' Californication record, System of a Down's Toxicity, and he's also worked on so many other amazing records that I absolutely love. Artists like Rage Against the Machine, Thrice, Weezer, Charlie XCX, Audio Slave, Avenge Sevenfold, Anti Flag, Power Man 5000. Like the guy's really worked on so many records that you'll definitely know. And in this conversation, we have a great chat about working our way up the ranks of becoming an engineer or a producer in a bigger studio and getting to work with people like Rick Rubin and people that sometimes might seem unobtainable right? But how do you get your foot in the door? What does it take to actually work your way into this industry? And Dave shares a lot of great advice in this episode about how to make yourself indispensable and how to prepare yourself so that when opportunities come up, you can actually take advantage of them and make yourself known and actually capitalize on those opportunities. So we definitely chat about how he was able to do that in his own career and get to the level of working with people like Rick Rubin. And we also talk a lot about his approach to working with artists and how to get the best performances out of them. And when I say performances, we're not just talking about the artists actually performing that part, but how do you get the gear to come into the equation? You know, how can the gear actually make for a better performance? And we definitely talk a lot about his personal approaches as well as the ways that he handled things while working with Rick Rubin so that the gear really did inspire people and so that they were able to capture those amazing performances that really stand the test of time. So we definitely get into that in this episode here. I think you're going to find this episode super fascinating. He's got a lot of great stories, a lot of great advice here. So you're going to definitely gain a lot from it. So with that said, let's just jump right into the episode. Dave Schiffman, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix Podcast. How's it going?
1: All right. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you.
0: Awesome. For people who might not know you or the music you've worked on or just uh, your history in music, can you give us that story about how you got into music and engineering and all, all the cool stuff you're working on these days?
1: Well, uh, to make a story a long story slightly less long, um, <laughs> recording music was something that always kind of tweaked my interest when I was younger. Uh, back then it was it was hard to find a way in uh there weren 't the uh recording schools there wasn 't the internet you know where you could go to YouTube and kind of learn and you know see what it 's really all about so I had to figure out a way to to get my foot in the door, so to speak um So I graduated college. I didn't really study uh, music recording there. There were a couple of sound recording courses that I took. There were two. And, uh, you know, they were were a good background, but it wasn't really much. Um, So I knew going in I was pretty green. But I was, you know, I was into it. It's what I wanted to do. Uh, The... The best thing I could line up at that point was through a friend of a friend, I got a job at a voiceover studio in New York City. And they did, you know, uh, radio commercials and uh, industrials. And it was all voice. Like there wasn't really music involved in the studio at all. But I figured at that point it was a foot in the door. It was, uh, you know, in a recording studio. It was – you know, just kind of exposure to, to the process, I guess. So I took this job and primarily what it became was I ran the, the dupe room, which meant I would make copies of, uh, the commercial that they made, or sometimes, uh, people from that didn't work in the studio would send over commercials to be, uh, duped. So they would hand me, uh, little quarter-inch reel with a 30-second spot on it, and they'd say, we need 300 copies of this. So I had uh, five high-speed... No, sorry, I had three high-speed dupers. And so I had to run... So for 300 copies, I had to make 100 runs. And it was uh, it was boring, to say the least, and monotonous and... A pretty horrible job, but it was, like I said, it was a foot in the door. And the woman who managed the studio, uh, we became friendly and she had another friend who at that point was uh, a runner at a real music studio, uh, the studio called Skyline Studios in Manhattan as well. And we were talking one day and she mentioned that her friend, uh, I think his name was Bruce. Bruce was going to leave Skyline because he got a job as a runner at another studio, the studio called Power Station, which uh, back in the day was the you know the the best of the best. It was you know it was the studio in New York City, and I was like, wow, that's amazing. And then a light bulb went off. I was like, hey, do you think Bruce could tell you? the day he gives notice over at Skyline. (laughs) And she said, well, I'll ask him. I'll see. So she calls Bruce and Bruce is totally cool. He's like, yeah. He's like, I will let you know the day I give notice. It's probably going to be sometime next week. And uh, yeah, and do your thing. So sure enough, next week, uh, uh, the studio manager, Lisa, my friend, she uh, intercoms me in the back room and she said, okay, it's time. He gave notice, so walked over to the phone, called the studio, and I said, hey, just wondering if you guys had any runner openings. I'm, you know, looking for a a job to break in. And the was like, you know what? Somebody just gave notice today. She's like, can you come down and talk to us? I was like, sure, I can be there in an hour. So I went down, interviewed, and got hired. I love that. And that was my, my in.
0: I love that story. That's um, amazing.
1: Uh, and and Skyline was great because they really uh, encouraged the the runners to learn, and they made it so that there were times when they could come in and uh, learn the room. The chief tech would would do like a class, you know, show us all how to align a tape machine or uh, set up a mic and get it to run through the console and get sound out of it, learn like the signal flow of the consoles. They had uh, two SSLs at that point. And just a general knowledge of just how the studio works and how they did, you know, how they worked because every studio kind of has a different way of how they operate. So that was really important. And that was part of why they were teaching us because there was a way that they liked to do everything. So this was the best way to show us.
0: That's amazing. And that's such a rare thing, too, because I feel like a lot of studios these days when you have runners, the runners are kind of just left sitting in the back of the room, just kind of observing things. And, you know, they take what they what they get out of it, you know, but it's not often that you get a studio that actually takes the time to teach people, OK, this is this is how we do it. This is our, our way. You know, that that's such a rare thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not something that probably happens as much anymore, uh, for sure. Um. It was uh, it was a great opportunity, and, and there was a lot of observing as well. You know, they would let you sit in on a session with, you know, an engineer that there was a good rapport with the studio, who was, you know, who was chill, like, yeah, sure, he can sit sit in and check it out. So you kind of got to work in that way, and then you'd help the assistant set up the session or break down the session, so you'd see how, you know, mics were set up and how to. Put them on stands, how to take them off stands. You know, real kind of simple things like that that you think, oh, well, what's the big deal? But it kind of was it, because if you unplugged a – say you unplugged a uh, ribbon mic before it was uh, – <laughs> you know, you could pop the, uh, the patch bay. You could pop the mic or if you unplugged a tube mic before it was shut off, you could uh, you could zap the tube you know it's little things like that that you know you just you just don't know until you know it you know of course
0: and even when you do know those kind of things i think when you get the opportunity to work in a new space like you still want to learn like how do you guys do it you know what i mean like some of that stuff is is the same thing no matter where you are but but like you said this, that studio had their own specific way of doing things so you kind of want to make sure that you're you're pleasing the people you're working for and you're doing it the way they they expect to see it you know
1: right Right. Uh, And I I mean, just as an example, uh, that studio wanted us to turn the tube mics off every night, but leave all the gear in the studio on. And then uh, a couple of years later, I moved out to LA and I had a job at a great studio called Oceanway, which was, again, one of the greatest studios in the world. And with a mic locker uh, that nobody could match and an amazing place to work. But they said, leave the tube mics on and turn off all the gear in the control room. So there really isn't like a right answer. You know, every tech has an opinion. It's like, well, you know, you turn that pull tech on and off all the time. It It's a wear and tear on the tubes. So let's just leave it on. And then another tech might be, well, you know, the longer it stays off, you know the less wear. And you know, it it's I don't know that there's a right answer. I think it's just more what uh you know, you feel better with because both answers kind of make sense. Absolutely. And I mean that's that's kind of the first lesson in the recording business in terms of subjectivity because everything in this business is subjective. <laughs> it it is a artistic job and Everybody has a different approach. Everybody has a different ear. Everyone hears things differently. And, you know, although that had nothing to do with listening or mixing, it was just an indicator of, okay, well, they do it this way and they do it this way. It's not an argument. It's not a take a stand or anything. It's just one way of doing it.
0: Absolutely. I love that. Yeah, and it's it's so true, and it reminds me a lot of like one of my first days at a studio where uh, I was talking with the head engineer, and he's like, "Oh, like what's your background?" And I said, "Oh, you know, I just got out of audio college, whatever." And he's like, "Cool, forget everything you learned in audio college because we do it completely differently here."
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and you know, th- there is that that thing where I and I remember when I was an assistant, I remember people coming in from recording schools and. Some definitely got a better education than others, but the overreaching thing was that they just didn't have real world experience. And real world experience trumps school every time. I mean, you know, I, I've seen uh, resumes where somebody will say they are a uh, professional at Pro Tools. Yeah. You know, what does that even mean? <laughs> I, like, I, I don't know what that means. I, I wouldn't even consider myself a professional at Pro Tools. You know, I think I think we all just kind of figure out the best way to use it and we use it, but it's just, it, it was just a very bizarre thing to see. And, you know, you may know all the quick buttons and how to do this and how to do that, but do you know how to talk to the musician on the other side of the glass? Do you know how to talk to the producer? Do you know how to take direction when the producer wants it done a certain way? You know, those things are more critical because you can pick up the other stuff. But if if you don't have that ability to communicate with somebody and to take direction and to do it and not to ask questions, well, then you become – then you become a problem instead of a solution
0: of course yeah i was chatting with andrew sheps recently and he said like the pro, in regards to the pro tools thing he's like that's a given you have to be good at pro tools if you want to work right. in a studio it's it's all the other stuff that really matters
1: exactly and you know the most important thing i'd say is are you a good hang because you're you're in a a small room with somebody for 12 14 hours a day they better be easy to get along with because if you if you aren't that person if you if you can't do that then it, this isn't the job for you you know and and I think back in the day the studios had a really were really good at being able to kind of filter those people out through the runner process because being a runner is kind of a shitty job I mean you're all you're getting people food you're cleaning toilets you're you are the first one there the last one to leave and there's no, you know, it's, it's not a heroic position. It is grunt work, you know, but what it is, it's a testing zone. It, it kind of shows, okay, are you, are you willing to do what needs to be put in? And it's not hazing. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's your mindset that's important. And people who kind of like myself who plowed through the runner experience and just kept their head down and just like, all right, I'm just doing it because, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking into the future. I'm looking into looking at, you know, two years down the line or whatever, you know, this is part of it. I get it. Those are the people who have a better chance of, of getting over and, you know, accomplishing as opposed to somebody who just like wants it right away and is, uh, like oh no 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 I'm not going to do that I want to be producing now you know there's there's a it, it takes time it's not something that happens overnight
0: of course yeah you, you can't expect that and like you're not entitled to that job you know it's like there's you have to prove it you have to prove right. that you're worth it
1: yeah you gotta prove you gotta prove yourself and you know that the prime objective of a great second engineer is to have y- your engineers back and. You know, being able to say, hey, you know, the one of the overhead mics dipped a little bit. Do you want me to go take care of that? And not announce it across the room and freak out the drummer and the producer. You know, it, it, there's there's a way of being subtle about things and just, you know, making sure things go right. And not necessarily basking in the glory of finding that. It's like, you know, you're... You're helping out. You're taking care of somebody. You know, you're making sure that they look good and in turn, you look good. So you kind of have to think about it in, in slightly selfless terms. You know. Obviously, your goal is to uh, get past the assisting phase and become an engineer in your own right and a producer. But in order to do that, you have to find opportunity. You find opportunity when people know that they can depend on you and they trust you and you communicate when, when you have that, your people are more bound to be drawn to you and want you involved and part of the process and part of the project. And from there it grows into hopefully, you know, um, more, uh, more, uh, responsibility.
0: Of course. And so I'm assuming in your case, that's exactly what happened, right?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's what happened, uh, At Oceanway, I got to Oceanway, uh, an engineer that I worked a lot with in New York City recommended me, uh, this great mixer producer named Kevin Killen, who did a lot of work out at Oceanway. I told him that I was interested in moving out to California because I was dating a girl who lived in California, and we were playing cross-country for about a year, and at that point, at the New York studio scene, it was becoming evident that it was kind of going away, you know, real estate prices and, you know, rent had just kind of driven a lot of the smaller studios out of business. So it, uh, it was all kind of happening in L.A. at that point and maybe a little bit in Nashville. But really in the, in the early 90s, it was really about L.A. So he said, well, I'll recommend you to, you know, I'll give you a recommendation for Oceanway. Uh, go talk to the manager when you're out there and see if you you can pull something together. So the next time I went out, I went to Oceanway and met with the the studio manager at that point. Jack Waltz was his name. And, uh, it was great. Uh, they were just putting in a a brand new SSL at that point. Uh, the biggest SSL in the country at that point was, a hundred inputs you know it's massive thing and this was their first SSL they didn't have any at that point so my whole pitch was well I can work the SSL room for you it's like that's that's the studio I come out of is two SSLs that's where I'm fluent that's where I'm comfortable that's where I can really you know do my thing and he's like yeah yeah that sounds like a good idea okay all right well uh Let me talk to Alan, that was the owner, and I'll get back to you. I was like, okay, fair enough. So, uh, about uh, two weeks later, I'm like, wow, you know, what's going on? I was definitely getting a little anxious about it. So, I made a follow up call to Jack. I was like, hey, you know, just checking in, see if you guys had thought it all about, you know, this uh, as a possibility. And Jack goes, oh, oh, yeah, 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 H- hang on a second. And he puts me on hold for like 15 minutes, just <laughs> disappears. And I'm just like, do I hang up? Do I, you know, w- what is going on?
0: Are they having the conversation right now for the first yeah, time? Yeah, like- <laughs> I, I, that's
1: that's what I'm I'm sure what was happening. So he finally gets back on the phone and he's like, yeah, yeah, okay. I guess we can use you. When can you be out here? And I said, like, wow, great. I said, I just need to type some loose ends here. You know, I got to give notice to my job. I got to pack up my apartment and I actually got to get, get out there, you know, drive out there. So I was like, can, can we do it next month? And he said, all right, all right. Next month. Sounds good. Stay in touch. We'll see you then. And like, great. I'm in. So (laughs) two weeks later, he calls me and he's like, where are you? I thought you were coming out here. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm still kind of <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> buttoning stuff up here. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. He's like, okay. He's like, get here as soon as you can. We really need you out here. We're we're swamped. So I finally got out there, started working. I ended up maybe doing two or three sessions on the SSL. Like I got thrown into the deep end on these great old vintage Neves that were in every other room. Uh, But it was amazing. Like those consoles are magical, you know, and you, you know, you're really a part of the session back then because the assistant was running the tape machine. Um, Oceanway had these notoriously uh, tricky tape machines, these old ATR-120s that looked like washing machines. They were beasts that punched so weirdly. Like the punch in was fine, but the punch out, instead of punching out on the downbeat, you almost had a punch out on the and before the downbeat. You had to anticipate the downbeat in order for it to be a clean punch. So most engineers who walked in for the session would turn the remote around and give it to the assistant, be like, I'm not dealing with this, you deal with it. (laughs) So- uh, which which was great because it was really – it was really amazing to be that much part of the session. You know, you're sitting there interacting with the musician, with the producer, with everybody and, you know, you really feel like you're part of it and you're doing something. Um, that was invaluable because you're really in on what's going on and you just learn so much, you know. Um. So I was there for about a year and a half. Uh, Towards the end, I was working with uh, an engineer named Richard Dodd, who's based in Nashville. He was out uh, working on uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers record uh, called uh, One Hot Minute. That's the Chili Peppers record nobody really talks about. That's
0: my favorite Chili Peppers record.
1: Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Um, That's the one that Dave Navarro played guitar on. Um, well, that record was going pretty slowly. There were, you know, issues just kind of getting the songs together and other stuff. And Richard had kind of had enough. We were working on vocals and I think he had been out there for well over a month and, you know, he missed his family. He was ready to go back to Nashville. So he turns around and looks at me. He's like, you want to take over? And I like, sure. I was like, if you're comfortable Referring me, I would definitely take over. Absolutely. He said, okay, all right. I'll talk to Rick's assistant and, uh, hopefully we can get that going. I was like, amazing. Great. So he's all set to leave the next day. He leaves. I don't get any phone, no phone call, nothing. And sure enough, another engineer strolls into the room. I was like, okay, well, I guess that didn't work. And, uh. This was a, another engineer from out of town. I think he was from Vancouver and came in, you know, who, you know, shall remain nameless. But this uh, this guy really thought his shit didn't stink. You know, he came in with, with an attitude. And, you know, at that point, I dealt with plenty of engineers who kind of had, you know, an attitude. <laughs> and I was like, all right, man, you know, all good. So – uh, you know, we're about to start vocals, and I turn the remote around towards me, like I have done normally on every session. And he looks at me and he's like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "I'm going to run tape." He's like, "No, you're not. I'm running tape." I was like, "Okay, you can run tape." I turned it. I turned the remote around. It was a, a very weird remote. It was all plasma and very finicky, and it would do stuff without you wanting it to sometimes. So you really had to pay attention. And all the assistants had put in like little, you could put in presets. So we all had our little presets that would make it kind of a little more bulletproof, but it was never bulletproof. Like you could mess up on this machine so <laughs> easily. And so I was like, okay, no problem. So I turned it around and I was like, hey, let me just show you a couple of shortcuts that'll help you kind of get through... Uh this remote, cause it's a little, it's a little tricky. And he looks at me, he goes, you know, I think I know how to run a tape remote. And I was like, okay, you, no problem, man. You got it. So I turned around, went to the back of the room, sat down on the couch and he promptly buried himself. I mean, he just would have two tracks and record at the same time. One track would drop down a repro. Everything else was in sync. It was a mess. And, you know, he got really agitated, kind of lashed out at the wrong people. He did not last long. He was he, – I'm pretty sure he was gone the next day. And then there was just nothing. There was silence. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Richard, in the interim, Richard Dodd had been mixing stuff here and there when – Uh, we were doing vocals and Anthony was kind of in and out at that point. So on days where Anthony didn't show up, uh, Rick would have him mix a song, you know, Oh, can you do a remix of this? Can you, uh, we need a single mix of this. We need an edit for this. So we would just throw stuff at Richard and Richard would do it. So there I was sitting in an empty room and there was a song that needed to be mixed for a band called the Jayhawks. Uh, Cool, like Americana band from, the early nineties. And so I was like, all right, screw it. I'll mix it. So I sat down at the console and mixed the song, uh, you know, spent the whole day on it. And uh, at that point, Rick was running, I think all three rooms at Oceanway at the same time with three different records. He was down the hole in, uh, I was in studio three. He was down the hole in studio two with Danzig and he was in another room I think it was with Slayer, but I'm, I'm not 100% on the, on the third room. And so I saw him walk by and I went out to the hallway. I was like, hey, Rick, uh, you know, there's nothing going on here today. So I know you guys needed a mix on that Jayhawk song. So I did one and, you know, you can use it if you like. And he said, well, he said, burn a cassette, that's right, a cassette, and Come down to Studio Two and play it for me. I was like, "Okay, great." So, burned a cassette of the mix. You know, wiped the sweat off my palms, walked down to Studio Two, popped it in the machine, and we sat there and he listened to it. And he listened to just about the whole song, and then you know he waves to me to turn it off. I turn it off. He's like, "Okay, cool. Thanks for doing that." And that was it. Like, <laughs> uh, like okay, you're, you're welcome. And, uh, and I walked out, went back to the room and I was like, well, what was that? I had no idea what was going on. So I just kind of like shut down the room and left for the night. And then the next morning, uh, Rick's assistant calls me and says, so, uh, they're moving to sound factory to, to do vocals. Can you go with them and record it? I was like, yeah. She's like, great be there at five o'clock and that was the beginning and I stayed with Rick and made records with him for like the next 10 years that's amazing and got to work on a lot of amazing records amazing artists it was really uh baptism by fire at its best it was really into the deep end and it was amazing invaluable and really helped shape my career to where it is now
0: I bet it it, like just from your story already, like there's a lot to take from it just when it, in regards to your proactive approach to things, you know, just like asking the right questions, paying attention to the details and, you know, taking, taking advantage of an opportunity like that to just do a mix and just see what happens, you know, and, you know, like all of that stuff, I think really goes to show, you know, what's kind of needed to, to make it. As a professional in this industry, you have to take those opportunities because if you don't, you're sleeping on them and you're going to miss out and someone else is going to jump on those things. Uh,
1: absolutely, but the uh, the other important thing is that you're ready to take advantage of those opportunities. I was I was in a situation where you know, I was feeling confident in what I was doing at that point. And having the opportunity is one thing, but being able to back it up is another. And that's really important. So having your your skills together, having your critical listening together and being able to do that stuff before you actually volunteer your services is a is a better way to kind of get in the door than to just be like, Well, I had no idea what I was doing, but I was gonna mix it anyway. Because then you become this lunatic who dropped a mix on the producer that sounded insane, you know, that was horrible. And, and that follows you. So, you know, that it, it it definitely was a, a moment of luck for me, but I was ready for it.
0: So how did you build that confidence though? Because so many people have that imposter syndrome feeling that keeps them paralyzed and that they just never believe that they're good enough to even try to take advantage of some of those opportunities. So was there, was there like a moment in your career where you were kind of like, I'm good at this. I know I'm doing this right. Like, uh, <laughs>
1: the, the imposter syndrome never goes away. Just, just so you know. And, uh, you know, thinking that I'm good at it, you know, I don't know that I ever said to myself, oh, I'm good at this. It was just, I'm getting through this, you know? And I, I think what gave me the confidence to do it was I was, I had, I'd recorded a bunch in New York before I came out and I'd mixed a bunch. So I was I was somewhat comfortable in my mixing abilities at that point. And I knew what Richard was doing in terms of like how he was setting up a mix. So I definitely took some plays out of his book to get it there. So it was consistent with what Rick was hearing. Um so that that helped enormously. But I think knowing that instead of going my own direction exclusively on a mix, I think was a better way to kind of sidestep in. Um, And, uh, you know, I I was kind of at the point where I was like, you know, what the fuck? I have nothing to lose at this point other than him saying he doesn't like the mix and I'm back to where I am anyway. So it was, you know, it it, it wasn't, like the imposter syndrome went away, it was more like I just pushed it into the closet for a couple of hours and just, you know, ignored it. But, um, you know, I I can't speak for everybody, but I, that feeling doesn't go away. I, I think with people who who love their job and who are passionate about what they do, I think that's something that always lives in the back of
0: your head. Of course, especially when you get the opportunity to, Present your skills to a major name in the industry. You know, you're always going to have that that feeling of intimidation that goes along with it.
1: Sure. Uh, look, anytime I send out a mix, I have that uh, not imposter syndrome, but there's that uh, there's that moment of uh, you know, oh my god, did I did I completely miss the point on this mix? You know, did I completely fuck it up? What you know, what am I doing? And there's always that that self doubt creeps in, especially on the first song of a whole record because, you know, at that point, you know, you're kind of feeling out your artist, you know, what what do they really want? Because, uh, you know, a lot of times somebody will tell you what they want, but that isn't what they want, you, you know, and it's up to you to kind of interpret that and to understand what, okay, this is what he means by warm. This is what he means by dry. You know, there's these are all like adjectives that people will use, but they use them differently. So there's the uh, learning, learning of the vocabulary, which is, you know, which can be, you know, important and uh, tricky sometimes. Absolutely. Because, you know, you got to get on the same page in order to push through something. You know, I, I never expect to send out a mix and for somebody to uh, call me back and go, oh my God, it's perfect, we're done. Like, I, I just don't, that that just isn't realistic, you know? And if somebody did that, I would immediately like question what was going on. <laughs> because, uh, you know, it's not that uh, the mix is broken, it's just that, like I said before, it's subjective. And everybody hears things differently. So, your idea of uh, a loud snare is not somebody else's idea of a loud snare. You know it's it's all it's all semantics, and it's like getting your arms around that and being able to address it and address it in a way that you still feel is tasteful and appropriate for the mix, but you've also managed to uh, make your artist happy,
0: of course, yeah, it's interesting because you know, Rick Rubin is kind of known as being one of those types of producers that isn't always attending the complete session and sometimes he's not there so In situations like that, as the engineer, how do you approach the engineering side of things so that you're ensuring that the things you're doing align with his vision of what those sounds should be and that kind of thing? Because you're making some important decisions, micing things and, you know, getting tones and all that stuff, and that can drastically affect the album.
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. And it takes a certain artist to really work in that world. You know, I think... There's a lot of trust that happens there and there's a lot of trust that had to happen between uh, Rick and myself and you know there was a there was a confidence and that doesn't mean it was always right, but there was the confidence that okay well if it's not right we'll figure out how to get it right and you know one of the benefits of working with somebody like Rick is there's really not a budget and there's really not a time frame it's You know, and I heard him say this, you know, dozens of times, it'll be ready when it's ready. It'll be done when it's done. And, you know, that's his mantra. And if you're not on board with that, then you're going to be really frustrated making a record with him. You have to be in that mindset. And I think artists who did do that really flourished and really, you know, prospered from his style. Um, and what was great for me was, you know, that was really kind of throwing me the ball. And there was a, and that trust between Rick and I transferred to a trust between myself and whatever artist we were working with. And that's an amazing feeling to know that, you know, this artist knows you have their back. And, you know, you're working together to make it sound the best it can be. And, uh, you know, do you think Rick will like this? You know, that's that that was always the $64,000 question. Well, (laughs) is Rick going to like this? And sometimes it was like, well, I don't think he's going to be down with this because, you know, it's a little too roomy or it's a little blah, 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 you know, whatever. And, you know, you had to figure out a way to be delicate about it and diplomatic about it, but to, you know, to try and, get behind something that was more you know that i thought might be more in rick's head and look sometimes i was completely off and it was the other direction <laughs> but you know that's it's all part of the process you know and you know part of the process is making the mistake or like missing you know because sometimes it's a journey sometimes you sometimes you go completely around 360 degrees and you're back to where you started. But that's part of the process. It's like, well, no, this mic sounds great, but what about that mic? Oh, that mic sounds great. What about that mic pre? And it turns into a whole, uh, you know, taste test, which can really blow your brains out. You know, it's, that gets really crazy. And, you know, I, I don't want to say nine times out of 10, but a good portion of the time, you know, you go, it ends up back where your instinct led you in the first place. I mean, uh, on the, uh, audio slave record I did with Rick, uh, obviously Chris Cornell's vocal sound was super important. And when he was singing with the band while we were tracking, you know, just doing scratch vocals, I set him up with, a uh, an old AKG C12 through, uh, an Eve mic pre a 1073 with an 1176 and sounded like Chris. You know, kind of hard to mess that up. Um, and that was what we used for all of the tracking. And then it came time for Chris to start doing vocals proper. So, of course, we brought in every mic known to man, every mic pre known to man, and every compressor. <laughs> and It was every combination. It was, you know, it went for days just looking for this perfect combination that was just going to kind of make it work perfectly. And at the end of the day, you know where we ended up? C12, 1073, 1176.
0: Amazing. I love that. But I but I love that you guys saw that whole process through to just figure out what really made the biggest difference. And you said it took three days to get there, but you know how awesome is that? That in the end you you realize, hey, I, maybe I do know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well,
1: it's it, it's that, and it's also, I, I mean, part of the education is those three days is learning. Like, oh, that's what that mic does. Oh, well, this is what that's. You know, it's you you get to absorb all of this information. And look, sometimes it's, it's a bit much, I mean, to work on a vocal sound for three days. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore unless you're in a room with somebody like Rick, you know, usually it's like, all right, let's go. We got to get vocals. You know, let's, we're, we're going to try these three mics. You're going to sing the verse and chorus on all three of these mics and we're going to pick. And usually it's pretty self-evident at that point, which mic is, is the right one. And Usually, I'm on the same page as the artist. Every once in a while, there'll be a, a you know, a, a difference of opinion. But at the end of the day, what I found is that the mic that makes the singer the most comfortable uh, with what he's hearing, he or she is hearing in their earphones, is the right mic. Because whatever's going to get the best performance is the right mic. It's the right vocal sound. And... You know, if it's not the most fantastic fidelity, well,
0: you know, you work around that. You make that work. Well, that's interesting because I was going to ask about that. Like, I'm sure that there is a bit of a psychological side of that as well, where when you're experimenting with all the different signal chains and stuff like that, you're going to run into some singers that are just exhausted by the end of doing that. And like you you may have gotten away from getting that perfect performance that you could have started with. Right. So exactly. Exactly. So, so how did you guys manage that then? Was it like, was it just a conversation with the singers? Is that like, are you cool with us just going through this process or were you just feeling it out in the moment? How, how did you guys make those decisions? Well, I,
1: I mean, in the case of Audio Slave, that was just part of the process. And,
0: uh,
1: you know, I, I don't think Chris minded at that point. I think he was definitely interested in kind of where it could go. But I think when you're talking about uh, smaller budget records where you're under you know, more of a time constraint, I think uh, you don't want to pull a singer out of the moment because, you know, time is money in the studio. So I try and make those experiments uh, to the point. Like I said, I'll put up two or three mics and not do the whole song and really just kind of go with my gut. You know, a lot of... and, And I think that's part of it also is... You know, going with your gut, going with your first thought, a lot of times that is the right way to go. You know, that's that's not to say that sometimes going back and redoing stuff because it, you know, you missed it or whatever isn't, uh, is a bad thing, but I think, you know, when you work from your gut, I feel like you, you get better energy off of an artist because,
0: you keep things moving you keep it fast
1: you know absolutely
0: yeah that that that's that's definitely like a a common thread that keeps coming up on the podcast is people saying you know even from a mixing perspective it's like don't listen to the song over and over and over again like try to work as fast as you can just to get those gut reactions and you know get get that musical inspiration in your head and get it to come through your speakers so you know from an engineering perspective it's a, it's the same thing a lot of the times
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, when I produce, I'm usually engineering as well. So, you know, it's a, it's a double hat there. You know, part of me is like, okay, I I really want to make sure this sounds right. And the other part of me is like, they're ready to sing. We need to sing. We need to start singing. We, you know, time to get, time to get in there and get this performance. So it's about balancing the two. And it's about, you know, being familiar with the tools in front of you. You know, if I go into a studio, say, you know, Dreamhouse, for example, I I know the mics that I like in Dreamhouse for vocals. You know, there's like three or four mics there that one of those will usually do the job. So if I can get those mics up and be able to check between them pretty quickly, I can almost do it now to where the singer's just talking on them because you immediately kind of – hear how the timbre of their voice is reacting to the mic and, you know, that a solid 85% of the time, just them talking on it. I'm like, that's the one, Hmm. but, but again, it all comes from, this is all from experience. This is all from, you know, putting up a vocal mic hundreds of times and, you know, listening to a, uh, a, a chain, a vocal chain hundreds of times and just knowing what it's going to do, you know, it's, uh, that's, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. It's, it's interesting that you said that bands working with Rick, like the common thread or that, that, uh, philosophy you guys had was like, it'll be done when it's done. And you said that the bands that leaned into that were typically the ones that got the best results out of it. So for those bands that it did take a while, what was occupying most of that time? Like, was it, was it the technical side of things? Was it the songwriting? Like what, what is that magic that I think Rick is known for? (laughs) Well,
1: you know, I, I, I never thought of Rick as really technically minded. You know, I, I think Rick just knows what he likes. You know, when you hire Rick, you hire Rick for his taste and for his perspective. So whether that is how things are sounding or the song, the lyrically, or the song structure, or parts, it all kind of plays into it. And they, all those parts are important. You know, at the end of the day, the song's got to be good. And I don't think, you know, I don't think we ever went into making a record where the songs weren't ready. It was just, how do we elevate them to the next level? And, Part of that process for Rick was to find all the different options, look for different ways to approach it, and see what works best and see what raises the level of the song. What's best for the song? What serves the song? And that's another you know important part when you're working with bands, trying to impress upon them that, well, you may have the most amazing bass part ever. But if it doesn't fit the song, then it's useless. It needs to, you know, everything needs to be subservient to making the song great. So if the bass part's too busy for the song, then the bass part's too busy and it's not right. And that's a a point of clarity that uh, younger bands sometimes don't get. And there's a well, you know, they, you know, people need to hear what I'm doing. And it's like, no, they don't. They need to hear what you guys are doing as a band. It's not about the individual. And that's where bands can really kind of falter, is where things just get too busy and too, you know, I need to hear more of me. I need to hear more of me. I need more snare. I need more guitar. I need more vocals. it you have to be able to look at it as the song.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. I love that. That's such a great point because so many people are, yeah, just so fixated with their own instrument and writing up the coolest part. And yeah, if you forget about the fact that you're writing a song, then it'll just destroy everything. I remember I'm a drum. I'm a drummer, and I remember one of the earliest lessons I learned with my teacher was, you know, I used to think drummers were like flashy people that can play all these technical things and i remember like the first album he gave me was like this weezer record and he said just learn it and i was like like it was like i was maybe drumming for a month i was like how am i gonna learn a whole record he's like listen how simple this is and like that's why these songs are good they're just like that first pattern that we learned on day one just they're done with feeling you know what i mean (laughs) like that's that's the reason why these songs sound so good and um it just really made a light bulb click for me that like, oh, like, yeah, you don't need to be flashy to to make good songs and to be a good drummer or, you know, a good guitar player or whatever.
1: I mean, quite the opposite. Uh, You know, uh, to me, a great drummer is groove and feel. And it's less about how flashy they are. It's more about just how they lay down that feel because everybody reacts to that. Everybody plays off of that. And if the drummer is doing this crazy complicated pattern with lots of like polybeats and sub shit, you know, it, it, it eats up all the space. It's like, where do the other parts go? And that's where you really have to get people to listen to each other. Like, well, that's, that drum part's fine, but let's look at your kick drum pattern for a second. What are you playing? Okay. Now what's the bass playing? All right, do, do you see how that doesn't line up? Do you see how like that you guys are kind of fighting each other? Let's find a different kick drum pattern that works with this bass line. Or the baseline's too busy. Let's find a way to simplify this baseline so it punches punches harder with the drums if that's what we're looking for. You know, again, all subjective. It all goes back to, you know, what it is you're looking to get. Of course but at the end of the day, everybody kinda has to know what everybody else is playing because you want it all to mesh in whatever way you're looking for it to mesh. If you're looking to make a super busy, frantic record, well, that's fine. That you know, that's that's your that's what you're going for. Great. Well, let's figure out how to do that in the best possible way.
0: Of course. Yeah, I love that. Um speaking of records that have like that have great groove and that really everyone seems to be totally in sync. Um, one album that you worked on that I absolutely love is system of system of a downs toxicity. And to me, that record is like, it's not the simplest record by no means, but, but the complicated parts all work super well together. And it's like, that's a band that seems to have really refined that process of making everything work together. Um, I'm curious to know, like, do you you happen to have any stories of working with that band that you might be able to share?
1: Well, I, I will say that those songs going into the studio were done. You know, they they knew exactly how they were played. Everybody knew their part. And, you know, everybody knew how it all meshed together. So making that record was really about sonics and performance. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was interesting. It, it, like, I definitely had fun making the record. And, you know, they're great guys. But it was intense, you know. There was there was a lot of uh, was a lot of headbutting <laughs> during that record, but you know I think all for the better. I think it it provided a great record, but it was uh, it was a slog getting there, and that record was all done to tape. We uh, we would use Pro Tools here and there to to fix things. You know, to maybe like if there was a drum fill that was like oh it's so close. You know, we would. Drop it into Pro Tools, fix it, and then we'd punch it back into tape, and uh, so everything stayed on tape. It was a, it was a different world, you know. What else can I can I share that's uh, that's not R rated? <laughs> <I, laughs> it was I a mean, fun not,
0: session. <laughs> yeah, I, look,
1: you know, it, it was it was fun. There was, uh, you know, there was nothing nefarious going on. It was just, you know. It was just a, a rock record, you know. And we we had some laughs. It got intense. It got less intense. It got more intense. It was uh, it was a great experience.
0: And I am sure all of that is what contributed to the album sounding the way it did in
1: the end. Absolutely, absolutely. And just kind of how that band works as a unit, you know they uh, they knew each other really well, and they were they were in sync. And a lot of it was played live. Because of that, you know, because like John and Darren really were in sync and it was really important that they played together to kind of lock down the groove and lock down the parts of the song. And I mean, uh, John played that without click. There's no really? click on that record. Yeah. So, so it was really important that everything felt good together, you know? So, cause I'm sure there are tempo fluctuations, but the, uh. The trick about a tempo fluctuation is if everybody fluctuates, then it's not really a tempo fluctuation. Fair. It's just a, you know, it's a feel, it's a change. you know, it's a, it's a groove alteration, you
0: know, Would so, you ever get into like tempo mapping songs and editing them at that point? Or was it all pretty much just no editing and keep that live feel?
1: There was no Pro Tools at that point. Fair. yeah. That was 19, we, we made that record in 98, I think. Or ninety nine, and Pro Tools was becoming part of sessions, but it was not part of that session. It wasn't. It wasn't really something that uh, that they wanted, or quite frankly, that they needed. You know, I think. I think when it came time to do vocals, I think we recorded that into Pro Tools just because of the ease and the uh, ability at that point. You know, where you could do you know, tons of tracks and you could comp from that. So I'm pretty sure we did vocals to uh to Pro Tools. Cool. But the rest of it was all on
0: tape. Very cool. Um another record that you worked on that I really love the sound of is Jimmy Eat World's Futures record. Uh-huh. uh To me that's my favorite record of theirs. Um and one thing that stands out to me on that record is the guitars. Like they the guitars sound so heavy on so many so many of the songs, but even though they're heavy, they still are so clear and defined. Like you can really hear the the notes coming through. And so I'm curious to know, like what is your typical approach to recording guitars and getting like great tones and getting that clarity out? I I think, well, I, I,
1: I think what made that record heavy was the drop tuning. I mean, I think we were, we were drop G or something. I mean, it was, I mean, guitars were tuned super low. So that definitely made everything hit a little harder it also made tuning a nightmare, honestly, like that record was, oh my God, just that definitely was our, uh, the, the albatross on our neck was getting the guitars to stay in tune. But, um, I think what, what I've learned over the years is even for heavy records, it's really important that, you know, if you're if you're punching an amp really hard, like if you've got the volume cranked up, I don't know that I want a distortion pedal on top of that. And if I'm running a distortion pedal, then I'm not running the amp quite as hot. You know, like it, like I, I think you need to pick and choose where your drive comes from and kind of balancing between the two, looking for the tonality out of the amp and out of the guitar as well as the weight, you know, and a lot of times what, what I'll do is I'll double track a cleaner guitar that is really kind of super clear. And that stacks in with, you know, a heavier, more, you know, driven distorted sound. And, you know, stacking guitars is great. It, can definitely give you impact, but if you have six guitars all playing the same exact thing, uh, to me it kind of turns into white noise. Mm-hmm. You, you're losing, you're losing bigness. You're losing punch. I think you lose uh, detail. So if you are going to stack guitars, or when I stack guitars, I try and alter the part on each guitar or change the tuning or change the guitar or change the amp sound. Because I think when you, when you carve out and change the sounds and get them to snap together, then, you know, then you're talking about a big guitar sound for sure. You know, like where you have like maybe a baritone in there or you have a guitar set up in Nashville tuning and you're using that. Um, Or if you're having the guitar player invert the chords in such a way so that uh, you know he's playing them on different in a different place on the fretboard, or uh, or we're capoing the guitar, so it's uh, it just sounds different. It just reacts to the amp differently, and that gives you like
0: separation. That gives you uh, detail. That brings back detail. That's very cool. It's interesting that you said that. Sometimes when you have that heavier tone, you'll go in and layer a cleaner guitar on top of that. Um, any, any specific reason why you would choose to basically re-record the guitar with a cleaner guitar as opposed to maybe splitting the amps and blending like a, a super clean sounding amp with a super dirty amp? Or Is that something you ever do?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'll definitely do that. Like I'll have two, maybe three amps going and I'll combine them down to one sound. Or I'll do like the dirty clean thing but i think my my feeling is that you play differently when you're playing to a heavy sound and when you're playing to a clean sound i think you attack the guitar differently because you it responds differently because it's not as driven so maybe you're not maybe you're playing harder and when it's a super heavy tone and super uh gained up you're not playing as heavy so you know, I, I think your guitar player is going to strike, hit into their guitar in a different way depending on the to- the tonality that you're getting from the amp. That makes sense. That's why I like, uh, when I'm doing guitars, I'd rather guitar players use their pedals and I'd not do the pedals afterwards because I think that really affects how you play. You know, if you're, if you're playing... And you want a delay on the guitar? Well, let's set up the delay on the guitar and make it make it work. Because I think you're going to play differently. You're going to react differently. So that's uh, I think that's critical to a good guitar
0: performance. Of course. So, so that's kind of like your one of your little tests at the beginning is just like getting someone to start pretty dry and then seeing how they play and then adding those effects afterwards. Or no,
1: no. I I think what what I'll do is when we. I guess when we're starting guitars in earnest, like as a, as an overdub, my first th- thought is, okay, well, why don't you set up how you normally set up like your guitar, your amp, your pedals, and let's see what we have under the microphone and bring it up under the microphone and go, Oh, okay. That sounds cool. What if we tried this uh tele over here instead of the strat? Let's see what that sounds like going through your chain. All right, that's interesting. Okay, maybe, uh, maybe this 335. Let's see. It's a rhythm part we're doing. Okay, so 335 could be cool. All right, like we're driving it pretty hard. Can we try pulling back the amp a little bit? And you just kind of like, you pick away at it, just looking for ways to make it work better or to sit better, you know, within the track. Sometimes, though, I will say, sometimes, uh, Player puts up their stuff and it sounds great. And it's like, okay, let's roll, you know? I think being open to that is important and not that, oh, well, we have to do it my way. I think as a producer, you have to be open to things sounding good (laughs) before you've put (laughs) your little thing on it, you know? Of course. I I think uh, people are always very ready to say, oh, well, I do it this way. I do, you know, let's do it my way. I think if you're trying to get the best representation of that artist, you want their input above everything else. You know, I I don't think there's a Dave Schiffman sound and I'm glad that there isn't. I know that there are other guys out there where you can spot their record, you know, five seconds in. I I don't feel like that's the case with my records. I feel like they are uh very true to who the artist is. That's amazing. And and I think that to me is is more how how I like to make records. I think if you make every record the same way, it's basically assembly line. It's like cookie
0: cutter and that sounds really boring
1: and uh repetitive to me. Yeah.
0: And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier of just like you learn through that process of hearing different yes, things. Absolutely. And, and someone might come to you with a chain that you've never used before. And you're like, oh, this is cool. You know, <laughs> Like I, I can't imagine like, you know, when Garth Richardson was working on Rage Against Machines for his record, you know, I, I can't imagine he was like, okay, let's go down to like DI and then we'll add our own track. You know, he's like, no, this is your sound. Like, you know, keep it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. And, and I think, uh,
1: it's important to remain open to learning new things from each record you do because everybody's kind of has a slightly different approach. And sometimes it's like, Oh, that's interesting. I've never tried it like that. Cool. You know, and you know, you, you take away a little thing here, a little thing there, and you just put it into the repertoire. You know, it's like, Oh, you know what? We were trying to get that on this other record And we did this instead, you know, and it's just like, it's always, uh, you're always learning. And I think it's important to always kind of leave that door open Mm -hmm. and not get super set in your ways. I think, uh, you know, it's like, uh, like they do in F1 racing, you know, they're always looking for ways to tweak that car, to get the most out of it, you know, uh, and, I think it's the same with making records. You're always looking for a little tweak here, a little tweak there to get the most out of uh, your sounds or the most out of the mix. So that's, you know, being down to try new pieces of gear or try a different way of recording something, you know, it's, just always kind of staying open to stuff like that. Of
0: course. And then at the end of the day, as long as the artist is inspired with the sounds that they've got, then they're going to give you those performances that they, that the songs need. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about was that when I was looking at your credits on AllMusic, um, one thing I noticed was that a lot of your credits are for engineering only. And I feel like these days, you know, budgets are getting smaller and smaller. And you kind of alluded to this earlier, but... But, but as budgets are getting smaller and smaller, engineers are having to take on more of the production roles where they're doing the producing, the engineering, the editing, the mixing, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm curious to know, like how have you found the role of engineer – like how has the role of being an engineer changed for you personally over the years? Has it changed at all or like when you're doing these engineering-only sessions? When I'm, when I'm doing the engineer-only sessions, uh, which I still
1: do on occasion, um, I really enjoy them. Because there's, there's a certain freedom to that where I'm able to kind of go down the uh, the rabbit hole, so to speak, you know, t- depending on the producer's willingness and patience for that and, uh, you know, and kind of learn stuff. And it's great to, like, be over the shoulder of somebody else doing what I do because, again, you know, you learn different things. Um and it's definitely different i mean it's a, it's not as much work <laughs> i mean when you're when you're producing engineering uh, at the same time you know you're keeping your eye on a bunch of stuff at the same time so there's a lot more riding on what you're doing whereas if you're just engineering well you're pretty much just focusing on what you're recording mm-hmm. and that's that's the that's what you're there for so when you're producing and engineering, you're kind of doing that and you're working with the band and helping with performances and helping with parts and, you know, just being a producer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's more work for less money. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what What advice would you give to someone who's maybe wanting to make a, a career out of engineering, but they don't necessarily want to go down the production route as well. Well, I think... Is that even possible these days? I I think it is,
1: but it's, uh, I think there's, it's a different route. I think if you're looking to be you know, someone's engineer, I think the first thing you have to be is a great editor. um, Because that's where a producer is probably going to lean on you more than anything else. Is, you know, to go in and clean stuff up or you know to uh you know if if you're creating something within pro tools to be able to um do stuff like that you know to chop up drums sort of chop chop up a guitar part and be able to put it together in a way that is pleasing to whoever you're doing it for um and i think that's kind of a good way in and and another way in these days is you know the advent of Atmos has is kind of taking off and I've started to mix in Atmos as well and I think uh it's great fun but there's a lot of technical differences between Atmos and stereo mixing and delivery is a little bit more tricky because there's no mastering involved so you're turning in what's being uploaded to the DSPs, so there are you know pretty rigid requirements about how you turn it in. So something that I'm seeing guys around town doing is they are uh, hiring themselves out to do delivery prep for Atmos, delivery prep, and also mix prep, and uh, that's a great skill to have. So if you if you haven't learned about Atmos yet, or you haven't, you know, investigated it, I would, I would recommend checking it out. One, because I think it's a really cool medium that I don't think is going away. I think it's only going to become more immersive as we go. Uh, and two, it's definitely a way to create some more work for yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. It kind of ties back to the, one of the earliest things we talked about, which was just like Taking advantage of those opportunities and having that preparation and being ready for it. And so, if if you if people are hungry to be an engineer these days, it's like there's this kind of wild, wild west of Atmos world that people are starting to get into, and yeah. not everyone understands it. So, if you can jump all in and understand this thing, there's a lot of opportunities there. It's just there definitely are, and it's one of those. It, the technology is
1: changing literally every day. Like there are updates. Constantly coming in, and it's getting better and better. And it's getting, I I don't think it's getting more complicated, but there's just lots of things to kind of wrap your head
0: around. Of course.
1: So if you're somebody who can uh, be detail oriented and, you know, uh, excited about a new technology like that, then you know, it's something worth looking into for sure.
0: Of course. Yeah, I, I find the whole Atmos world very interesting because it's, uh, you know, it's starting to become more and more people are talking about it on this podcast. And it's one of those areas that I haven't personally explored, but I know that there is uh, a lot of opportunity there if you jump on, jump all in and you understand it. Um, I'm curious to know what the future will hold. And you're one of the one of the few people I believe that I've had on the podcast who said that you don't think it's going away anytime soon. So I'm curious to know, you know, why do you feel that way?
1: Well, I, I'm sure Andrew Sheps did said said the same. <laughs> he better. I mean, he's like uh he's Mr. Atmos. Um I don't think it's going away because I feel like this is kind of the first format change from stereo that uh you can carry around with you. You can put in your earbuds and you get it. Um I think in that regard, it's different. I think you also have a $2 trillion hardware company that's behind it and wants it and wants to get to a place where everything they do, you know, kind of works with everything, you know, it's all integrated. So, uh, VR and gaming is very, at very Atmos centric. And in order to work music into VR and gaming, it needs to be Atmos as well. And I think that was kind of the 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 beginning of where it started, possibly. Fair.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Like, I, I think a lot of people have said, you know, the people that, the people that I've spoken with that have said they think it'll just it's just a fad. They it always gets kind of there's a caveat to it, which is that like they think it'll it'll last in film, um, you know, but maybe not like traditional music, like, you know, people listening to it, listening to music the way that most people do now. But in film, it obviously makes sense to have Atmos mixes and, and you know, that, that films will be presented in Atmos sound. Um, but I, I like what you brought up there of the gaming industry because that's such a big market.
1: That- I mean, that's a bigger market than the film market. And, I mean, they've been doing Atmos for film for years. I mean, this is this is not a new technology in the film world at all. Um so the music side is fairly recent. I mean, Apple rolled it out in May and honestly did a pretty horrible job of making the public aware. I mean, I I would still say most people most lay people I talk to about Atmos have no idea what I'm talking about. They're completely n- clueless as to what spatial audio is. So I feel like the people who do it have become some, something of an ambassador to spatial music. And what I try and do is anybody I know who hasn't heard it before, I'm like, come over. Let me play it for you. Check it out. you know. And nobody has left my studio saying, oh, whatever. I, I mean, I've had people listen to Atmos mixes and tear up. I mean, because it can be emotional because it is so uh enveloping it's so immersive i mean there's one of the uh the benchmark songs that a lot of at most people will play back on their system is uh elton john's rocket man um and it there's just it, it really kind of explains what this is all about you listen to rocket man and you get it it just you know uh, i think it was greg penny who did that mix Uh, He just, he nailed it and emotionally, sonically, everything, it's just, it's all there. And it, you just hear that song in a different way, but not in a way that's like crazy different. It's, it kind of feels like this is how it was supposed to sound all along. Interesting. And, and I think, you know, right now, uh, at most, there's a bit of a gimmick to it. And I think there's the uh, there's the rush to make things move all over the room. You know, oh, look, I can make it pan over your head. Isn't that cool? And I think we're still kind of in that world right now where, you know, stereo was, you know, 60 years ago. And, you know, you listen to early Led Zeppelin records and Jimi Hendrix, and they're panning stuff left and right like crazy. And because this is a new technology, it's like this is something – they can do, wow, cool. So I think we might still be in that world of Atmos right now. And I think the next phase is when people start to think 3D when they're making records and not after the fact. When you start miking things with the idea of like, okay, well, I'm going to want ambience behind this when I'm putting it in the speakers. So I'm going to have some mics behind the guitar amp. You mm-hmm. know, it, it, it's it's just start is just trying to think like that and trying to uh, meld it into your production is where it needs to go next.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, yeah, like what you said there about, you know, like listening to the early Hendrix records and stuff like that, where you're hearing stuff bouncing between speakers. It's almost like, you know, with the new technology, we we don't have a standard sound that we're used to hearing. So people are, are more willing to experiment and it kind of does sound a little bit gimmicky. Right. But I think that as more and more mixes start to come out in Atmos, we're going to start to hear, okay, this is kind of the usual thing that you have in the back with your, you know, back of the mix or the, on the sides and that kind of thing. And, and I think that will help to kind of not standardize Atmos, but it'll, it'll kind of make things a little bit more, uh, less gimmicky, I guess. Uh,
1: yes, uh, for sure. But I also think, you know, there is an appropriateness to it. I, I think, you know, there are certain styles of music that lend themselves more to things jumping around in a stereo or, or in the uh, Atmos, um, what's the word? In the sphere. spectrum, <laughs> right, the yes. sphere, yes. <laughs> the atmosphere. Um, <laughs> and there's other styles of music where – it's pretty much a band. So do you want a guitar like moving all over the place? Do you really want, you know, the singer to be bouncing off the ceiling? No, you know, not necessarily. Like, is that adding to the song? I think that's kind of taking away from the song. And again, it's all subjective and it really all depends on what, you know, what, what the artist has, Send you and you're mixing. But I find for stuff that's really band oriented, you want to, what you're looking to do is create a 3D plane. So, you know, if the singer is in front of you, maybe they're a couple steps closer to you than at the speaker. Maybe uh, the cymbals are a little bit higher than the drum kit. Maybe the guitars are panned off to the sides and then when the double comes in it's more forward and lower or what it's just it's just figuring out ways to make it so that it envelops you more but it doesn't distract from the song and i think that's where we need to be headed in order to make this more of a normalized medium and i think also the hardware companies need to get on the ball and start create, creating more Atmos-friendly things where, you know, you know, I think what we need is a, uh, a hardware where it's like four pods that you drop around you in your room and you link it up to your phone and poof, you've got Atmos. I think something like that needs to happen. And it's got to be at a price point that makes sense. It's like something that's going to go in a dorm room or – you know, in a kid's room, it like, that's where it has to push towards. So it's, again, it's early days and I think everyone's still kind of finding their way. But, um, you know, is it, I, I certainly hope it's not a fad. Um, you know, there are, there's certainly reasons to think it could be, but my feeling is that this is going to become more normal and more rote, uh, you know, three or four years down the line.
0: For sure. Yeah, I mean, you're right, though. As, like, companies are making it a lot more accessible, then, yeah, you're going to start to see a lot more people getting into it and trying it out. And, you know, with that becomes the the standardization of it, you know? Um, and it's also interesting, too, be, with, when it comes to Atmos, because I feel like we're at a time where we're also seeing the complete opposite side of things, where there's more and more... Uh, there, there are more and more mono devices being used these days. And like, you know, with like little uh, Bluetooth speakers and that kind of stuff, we're, we're kind of moving a little bit more to like mono in that respect, you know? And so it's, it's kind of interesting to see how we have these two extremes of like one channel versus many. And uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how people adapt to it.
1: Yeah. Uh, like Amazon has a, uh, an Atmos cone that is literally one thing And it will play back Atmos. And you actually hear it. I mean, like, it's able to shoot the sound all over the room. And it works. So in terms of, like, easy to carry around, you know, you've got it right there. And a a little-known tweak on the iPhone is that if you are – if you play back Atmos without earphones in and you hold the the phone on its side – you will actually hear atmos you'll i mean it's not going to be a great version but you'll hear stuff go behind you and stuff go up it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy if you think about it it's like those little speakers do make it happen so i think on that alone it shows the possibility is there to make it compact and to where everybody's able to have it you know, it it's there. It's just a matter of uh, you know, companies getting on board and doing it.
0: Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. I'm I'm very interested to see where the future goes with this. And uh, you know, I think uh it's great like you're one of the few people I've spoken with who has actually given me a really great perspective of um, you know, the idea of approaching a mix in Atmos and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think it makes a lot of sense. So um yeah, I'm definitely interested to hear more of what you're doing in Atmos in the future and uh obviously seeing where the technology goes with it as well and um I think you touched on a great point earlier of this is just a um a really good opportunity for people right now to be jumping all in on this and applying themselves and for the engineers out there who want to do it this is this is that time, right? <laughs> it's like Yeah, absolutely. And
1: you know, there's tons of tutorials online you can download the Dolby render. I think there's like a 90-day a free trial. It works with uh, Pro Tools. It works with Logic. It works with, uh, I think, um, Nuendo. And I think there's one other format. Uh, Logic, it's the most... Uh, um, oh, eesh.
0: It's like most integrated. Like all Thank this, you. All, the, all yes. the plugins and everything are right there.
1: Well, uh, Logic, you know, because it's... Apple owns it. It's all uh, integrated, and the and you're able to hear pretty accurately what it's going to sound like on iTunes with Logic. Um, Pro Tools is pretty well integrated. Also, uh, it's a little bit of fumbling around, and you know, hearing a reference back is is not quite as uh, pleasing, I guess but there is a way like if you have logic as well there's a way where you can monitor your pro tools through logic and you can hear a uh a spatial mix um something i haven't set up yet but i
0: am planning to at some point awesome awesome well dave i don't want to take up too much more of your time uh, thank you for taking the time to do this and and i think that you shared a lot of uh, great insight into both your career and just your processes and share some awesome stories. I know people are going to learn a lot from this, this episode. So, uh, I just want to say thank you for, for doing this. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If people want to learn more about you or follow you online, like we are, what's the best way for them to do that? Well,
1: uh, you can go to, uh, what is my website called? It's, uh, <laughs> Dave Schiffman com. Uh, or you can go to uh, Jaxsta, J-A-X-S-T-A, which is this great credit service, and that will have a listing. And there's all, that's also a way to get a hold of me. Uh, you, you can also email me through my website or, uh, or Instagram. I'm always
0: kind of keeping an eye out. So, uh, yeah, hit me up. All right. That was my interview with Dave Schiffman. And I really enjoyed that conversation. And I thought it was really interesting to get some insight into how he was able to work his way up the ranks as an engineer and how he was able to get in touch with guys like Rick Rubin and start working with him. And I think that there was a lot of great stuff to take from that as far as, you know, being prepared Jumping on opportunities, creating opportunities, and just your overall ability to be a good person in the studio that people want to be around. Because it was all of those things that he was doing that led to him having such a great career. Because he made sure that he was contributing to the sessions, he was providing a p- positive attitude, he was doing his job properly, he was paying attention to all of the details that the producers and the engineers wanted so that. He really was indispensable, and when the, when those opportunities came up for him to help someone, he was the perfect person, and he could jump in and take over. So I really think it says a lot about how to work your way up the ranks as an engineer in this business, and. I also like the fact that we did touch on the idea of imposter syndrome and how sometimes that can get in the way of you feeling like you can jump on these opportunities or that you can create these opportunities. But I love hearing how he dealt with it throughout his whole career, and I think that there's a lot that you can take from that and apply it to your own career as well. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that, and I hope that you did too. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studio. And on that website, there are so many great resources that you're definitely gonna wanna check out. And the first thing that I'll direct your attention to is a book that I wrote called The Mixing Mindset. And inside of this book, I break down the process of mixing so that you know exactly what steps to be taking, what to be listening for, how to use the tools, how to dial in the settings, That way you have a clear process to follow instead of feeling completely scatterbrained throughout the whole process. So definitely make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset and that is available at MasterYourMix.com. So with that said, we've reached the end of the episode. I hope that you enjoyed that and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.